This will not ever be a smooth transition. It's in my eye. I can see it. I want to... uh, You've got me in enough trouble today, Pat. Only only eight or nine phone calls about Pat today. I'm kidding. There's only six. Okay, here we go. A little horse tonight. A lot of things going on. Need some more medicine. Don't have my dry erase board. I have to come over here and get my security blanket, even though has no real value. <clears throat> Here we go. November 22nd, 2009, lecture discussion number transition three here again. Pretty much, uh, we be still treading water. And as I said in the announcements, I think that's going to be a long time for at least another three or four weeks, maybe pretty, pretty much another two or three weeks before we can return to uh, uh, normal. And uh, that, of course, Assumes a couple of things, one being that normal, just by implication, causes people to think that Cliffside has a normal and that our normal is the same as their normal. And that would be a mistake to conclude that because our normal is not their normal. They have normal normal. We do not have normal normal here. That's why I'm so proud of Bill Fast. He has two postulates. I can't tell you the second one, but it's funnier than the first one. Trust me. Ask him what his second postulate is about other groups that meet in this city that number 125, and there ought to be at least that many that would like our weirdness. But he always has said, and as you know, were you weird before you came to Cliffside, or did Cliffside make you weird? I think we have solved that now. We are convinced that uh, you were weird before you came here. But anyway, cliffside normal remains in its own little unique classification, and um, it so it's never really going to be normal here, and that, I think, is a good thing. It also assumes when you say normal, we're able to find what cliffside normal is, and that's a, a big problem as well, because if you're going to return to normal, you need it to be stationary, and our normal is not detectable. Our normal has a tendency to wander off and get lost in the forest and the cornfields and which is why we should have a visitor disclaimer. I'm looking around. I don't think we need it today. But hopefully we will have visitors, one, and we will read them the visitor disclaimer. And and now I'm going to be serious about this. If you bring a friend here for the games or for the buffet, great idea. If you bring them here to play pool, great idea. Understand something. They're not going to get it. The chances that I'm in a subject that they will get is very low. So you have to tell them, especially today, you're going to get an understanding today when we get into time dilation. Okay? When I start telling you to bring visitors, and I want you to, that's the reason we're trying to get something fun for them to do. It's really put up with the sermon, eat the food here, right? And hopefully someday I can bring them to where the sermon or the lecture actually makes sense to them. And that's my goal. But I know first time they walk in the door, you have got to be kidding. And that's why I say we have to have the visitor disclaimer. Invite people, but tell them, listen, this isn't going to be something that you're going to go, man, I really got that. 
It'll take a while. You have to come, and I say it over and over again, you have to come at least at least ten times in a row. If you do, I'll back up enough that you'll pick up what you first came to hear. In any event, we shall hopefully, at the least, when we get through this transition period in a few weeks, get back to Zechariah 11, Matthew 12, Revelation 17, 8. And that ultimately, as you know, sent us back into Exodus and the hardening of the Pharaoh. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? What does hardening of the Pharaoh's heart mean? And I hope we'll get there in December. But as you know, what's December? Yeah, it's Christmas time. It's a crazy time. And I feel a lot of pressure. Am I too loud? I feel like I'm too loud. Yeah, can you pop me down a little bit? Because if I start screaming, Pat, we're going to have fatalities. Thank you. December is a crazy time, and, and, and people come. This is kind of cool. I can do that. It's a, people come, and when they come, what do they expect? They're coming to church at Christmas time in December. What do they expect? Christmas carols, some kind of brand muffin. You know, some little candy cane for the kids, you know, that's what they expect. And they and I feel great pressure to be a seeker-sensitive kind of guy because of the Christmas season, and, and I feel great pressure to include material that doesn't frighten them off, as I said, uh, because you'll, you have families, most of you, I hope, and you bring them, and that's a wonderful thing. And your friends, they come in December, and I, I feel pressure to do something that they will understand and like. Great pressure. I ignore it, but I feel it. It doesn't change anything I do, but I still feel bad for them. There are some times I've actually got up here, just as an aside, and watched a whole group of new people come in, and I look at my notes and go, can I change this? And the answer is yes. I've been doing this a long, long time. I can change it. I could sit here and just take questions from the audience and go forever. You know that. But... I look at it and go, I have new people. I should change it for the new people. This is not something they're going to like. Do I change it? No. But I feel bad for them. So I'm thinking about what the Christmas Day sermon will be, because you're going to invite people to the Christmas Day sermon, I hope. Christmas Eve sermon, Christmas Sunday sermon. There's, you know, there's both of them. They're kind of in the same week. And I wanted to do an old traditional favorite this year. And so I have decided it's the Christmas season. When you think of Christmas, you think of all kinds of different symbols. And so that makes you realize that we have to discuss the metaphysical implications of the missing supernova remnants, because that's very important, or what they call SNRs. If I had a board right now, I'd be putting supernova remnants here. You thought I'd say subatomic diameter, didn't you? See, there's metaphysical implications of the missing supernova remnants as well as meta, uh, subatomic diameter. And they're critical information for you. As everyone is well aware, the most widely accepted supernova expansion model predicts three stages of supernova remnants. Did you know any of this? Some of you do, I know. But the most widely accepted supernova expansion model, they say there's going to be three stages. Have anybody ever seen a supernova? Have you? Good. Because if you said yes, that means you were around in 1054. It was so bright, by the way, that you it lit up the daytime. This is the explosion of a star. 
And so it was an extraordinary thing. And when we have one blow up, what do we have left? Stuff. And there's three stages of this. And so we need to know about the three stages of the supernova. The first stage is the blast wave stage. A supernova, why is this guy anything to do with Christmas? It's a star. That's right. Whenever you're going to talk about stars, you've got to talk about blowing up stars. That's how you do it. It's, a, it's an absolutely perfect Christmas sermon. A supernova is a violently exploding star. Did you think, by the way, that the star of Bethlehem was a supernova? You'd be wrong. So don't be wrong. A supernova is a violently exploding star. I want to see, oh, little, oh, little supernova remnant of Bethlehem. Why don't we ever have that song? It explodes when its nuclear fuel runs out. See, that's what the sun is, right? It's a huge nuclear device. And we worry, don't we, about its fuel running out. When it runs out, what will it do? It will explode. It will go supernova. Now, I personally have gone supernova when I was 53. I did. I have witnesses. I hit 10 home runs. I batted about 675. I dominated. Supernova. That was the end of me. I'm now a remnant. What stage of remnant I'm in, it's a long story. I don't know yet. We're, we're trying. We're exercising. We're doing push-ups to overcome the third stage of the remnant supernova. The first stage, as I said, is a blast wave stage. It's a ex- violent explosion. It explodes when the nuclear fuel runs out, and there's no longer any force to balance the gravity, okay? I need this nuclear force that's being, that's being created by this, it's a, essentially a big ball of fire gas, right? But I have this pressure, and that keeps the star from collapsing on itself. Once the fuel runs out, then the star no longer possesses any energy, and it begins to collapse upon itself. And tremendous gravity, gravitational force. When there's no longer any fuel to balance its gravity, it collapses very quickly in two seconds. Huge boom. Huge boom. Very bright, emits very powerful radio beams, which is why they call it a pulsar. Okay? That's your first stage of a supernova. The second stage is the adiabatic stage, as everyone knows. And the third being the isothermal stage. Why is this important, especially at Christmas, Christmas star? Why is this important? It's because astronomers, we, we should see supernova remnants. We should see them. See, because the Earth and the universe is what? It's a quadrillion years old. Seventy-seven, I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, seventy-four a trillion, zillion, gigagillion years old. Anyway, they think it's billions and billions of years old. And if it were, we should have what? We should have a lot of supernova remnants because supernovas would have burned all their fuel and they would have exploded violently and we'd have bright lights and we would all be saying, oh, look, another supernova remnant. There would be thousands of them. And we, based on... See, this is uh, what we call evolutionary uniformitarianism. If you assume that the rates and processes that are going on today have been going on for billions of years, then you should be able to extrapolate back, right? If this is if every 
50 years, I get a supernova, it burns out. I should have lots of them. If it's 500 years, 120,000 years, whatever the years are for the supernova, and there are many estimates, I should be able to find some. So they say that we should see about 5,000 of them because we're only going to see 12%. So that tells you that there's really uh, 10 times that, but we're only going to see essentially a tenth of them, and we should see at least 5,000 of them in our immediate area. And that's based on monistic evolutionary atheism and evolutionary uniformitarianism. And those are words that you need to know. Should be 5,000 SNRs. Should be 5,000 supernova remnants. Should be 5,000 third stage. There should be 5,000 isothermal stage. Okay? And so how many do you think the astronomers have found in either second or third stage? How many? Should be able to find. By the way, we have found some first stage. We found two. How many third stage have we found? Zero. Zip. Notification. Nil, none, big goosey egg. There are no supernova third stage remnants found. What's the obvious question? Why not? How many have we found that blew up? Two. We're waiting for them to go into third and second stage. And this is called the absence of third stage SNRs, which is what you do at Christmas. Why are you going to do it at Christmas in the grocery store line? Why are you going to do this? Because somebody's going to sing what? Oh, little supernova third stage isothermal of Bethlehem, right? And you're going to say, hey, you know what? There is no third stage supernova remnants. Have a nice day. Have a nice Thanksgiving. Have a nice Christmas Eve. Is this the Christmas Eve sermon? You invite your friends. Am I going to talk about supernova remnants? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. am. They gotta know, baby. They gotta know. And we have this absence of third stage SNRs discussion, and, and it must then include what? If I have, if I'm going to talk about supernovas, what else am I going to talk about? I got to talk about what's called the faint young sun paradox, and that's essentially nuclear fusion, right? We have talked about that before, the faint young sun paradox. We have a sun, and we can figure out how much fuel it has spent by what? By its diameter and by what else? How hot it is. Okay? Now, is it going to be hotter when it had more fuel or hotter when it has less fuel? That is the issue for you to understand. I'll explain it in a couple of weeks. In any event, the temperature of the earth would be far, far different if it was really old. It clearly, the sun is not old because we have essentially uniform temperature throughout the history of archaeology, right? We can see we got a little uh, cooling, but we also had significant uh, uh, equal temperature throughout the Earth. So we're going to have to talk about the faint young sun paradox, and we're going to have to start talking about the first law of thermodynamics. The total amount of mass uh, energy in the universe is constant. We'll have to do that. And then Einstein's theory of relativity and its application to time dilation, or dilation, sorry. No, I keep saying dilation, dilation. What's time dilation? Why is that important at Christmas? 
because time can proceed at different rates through gravitational issues, and that solves what problem? The distant starlight problem. How can I see starlight? I can't have God be a deceiver. Stars are how far away? Long way. How fast does light travel? Do you know, do you know, do you know? Got to know. How long does it take that starlight to get to me? Okay. Is the star still existing then once it's got to me? Am I seeing light from a star that has since become a supernova? How do I solve the speed of light through a vacuum to the earth without making God someone who is deceiving us? That is your classic Christmas sermon. Anyway, there's this year's December 24th. Christmas Eve lecture, kind of. I'll be nicer, but kind of. Be sure to bring the kids for that. Huh? Now, my point is, is that I, I know that the what I just said, the aforementioned, if you will, is technical, difficult, drool-inducing, insomnia-curing physics. It's physics. I was a what? What was I? I was a physics and math teacher. That's right. But you've got to know the physics because physics is at the forefront at Christmas time. How, why? Physics is very important at Christmas because of the Shekinah glory. I'd be writing Shekinah glory now. The Shekinah glory is the light that appeared to the shepherds. We've got to know what that light is as best we can. We have to explain that the Shekinah glory appears. We'll all do my favorite thing. We'll hand out little candles and we will light women's coats and hairs on fire because they do put the chairs closer together here. Have you noticed that? We go spread them apart, they put them back together. We spread them apart, they put them back together. So we're going to have, they put them together this way. You can't get up and walk through the row, can you? Anybody try it yet? Okay. I don't think you can. Don't carry sodas and popcorn. But we're going to we're going to typify the Shekinah glory being in Israel. I'm sorry, in Egypt during the plague of darkness. They all had the Shekinah glory in their house. That is also the mystery of the indwelling. You have the light, the Shekinah glory inside you. Where is it, by the way? Where is the temple of God, the tabernacle of God in you? He says, you are designed just like the Solomonic temple. You are designed just like the tent of Moses. You are designed just like the temple in heaven. And that means you have a Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. You wouldn't think, by the way, did you, that the temple of, of or tabernacle tent of Moses was a unique structure. It wasn't. It was built on, it is a copy, if you will, a rudimentary copy of the heavenly tabernacle where God dwells. Now, if we are a small representative of that, and if I had my board, how many times am I going to say that tonight? And I described for you the little talit or the prayer shawl that all the men of Israel would wear as they walked out of their houses and stood in this this uniform line and looked out at the tent of Moses. They all had a little hat on, essentially, and that hat was a picture of the tent of Moses. So I had thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of men standing out there with little tents of Moses on top of their head while they looked at the big tent of Moses. And if you walked on top of a hill and looked down at them, you'd understand perfectly what they were doing. They know, the Jews know, that they are a tabernacle. 
a miniature tabernacle. So are you. So you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit if you're saved. That is the mystery of the indwelling. You have that. Where is it? Yeah, it's in your brain. Why would it be there? That makes perfect sense. Why would a lot of people say, well, it's in your heart. Your heart's a muscle. Do some push-ups. Exercise. Make your heart better. You can work on your brain. Do crossword puzzles. I'm kidding. You can eat omega-3. I do that. Because I'm very worried about my impending senility. Staving it off as long as I can. I'm hoping to make it till January. What's that? Thursday? Third stage, that's right. <laughs> anyway... It's in your brain. I would expect the God to be in your brain. The Shekinah glory, the light of God. That's, by the way, why Christians and I, I'm getting off the subject now. I've got to watch the time. There's the time. The clock's wrong. It says it's 11.30. How long have I gone? Oh, no, it says it's 5 o'clock. How come the lights are turned off in this thing? Turn on more lights, Pat. Not spotlights. How about these lights in back by you? Why can't we turn those on? Oh, turn those back on. I can't see the clock. That's very bad when I can't see the clock, Pat. There. Hey. Little, little, I still can't see the clock, Pat. No. It says, hi, Steve. I can see that one. Okay. Thought it was 11:30. It's three minutes to tw uh, to five. Okay, I uh, you cannot be. You thought I lost my place, didn't you? You cannot be demon possessed. I'm a professional. You cannot be demon possessed if you're saved. Why not? Because the demon isn't what he isn't stupid. The demon is not going to go inside you because what's there? The Shekinah glory is there. That which appeared to the shepherds appeared over the over the child, over the incarnation. Why did he come as an infant, by the way? Why not come fully grown? Never mind. Got to know that, though. That demon's not coming into you. He's going to get blown up. Not doing it. Won't go into the Holy of Holies. What happens if you go in the Holy of Holies and you are evil? What happens to you? Poof. They tie a rope, as you know, around the high priest, around his leg, just in case he has a problem in there. Because they ain't going in there after him. If he goes in there and he has the wrong incense or he has the wrong blood, he doesn't come back out because the Shekinah glory is in there. The purpose of that blood is to keep the judgment of God off of you, right? It's a shield. God is your, Christ is your shield. God is your judge and God is your shield, by the way. So you cannot be demon possessed because you are a miniature tabernacle. And that's the point. Of your Shekinah glory, and that's what we do at Christmas with the little candles. That's the purpose of that. Everybody says it's the same as communion. When you take communion, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm going to put the blood of Christ, the flesh of Christ inside of me because I have dying flesh and I have dying or corrupted blood. And so I need new blood. I need new flesh. It is a, it is a, as you know, a medical procedure. Well, the same thing's true with a little candle. You're saying you're saved when you take communion, by the way. We need to have communion service for you. Same thing with a little candle. You're saying you have the light of God inside of you. You have the Shekinah glory inside of you. Okay? Now, 
physics is so important at Christmas. Now, I know that all of that really happened in September. It did not happen in December. Sorry. Okay, I'm not really sorry about that at all. He's going to come on one of his own feast days, F-E-A-S-T, feast days. There aren't any in December, as you know. And certainly the God of the universe would know when his feast days are, and he would know when he would come, and he would pick one of those days to come in the flesh and descend into the fallen earth and seek and save the lost. He would pick one of his days. And I believe, as you know, that he came in the feast day of trumpets. Now, being omniscient that he is, that's, by the way, very handy, he would not make a mistake. He wouldn't stutter on that day, would he? He would have the correct day, and he would know the time because he's what? He's the creator of time. He's really good at time. So there is no star of Bethlehem. Sorry about that, if you like that song. Am I really sorry? No, that's a fake sorry. I'm not sorry at all for you. There is no star of Bethlehem. That is doctrinally unsound, biblically illiterate. Very hard to sing it. Do we still sing it? Well, yeah. As long as you know you're wrong, it's okay to be wrong. I always used to tell the kids, I don't mind you lying to me. In fact, I like it when you lie to me. I need the comic relief. But as long as you know you're lying, then you're okay. If you have fooled yourself, then we have problems. Then we need a professional. There's no star of Bethlehem. It was the 15th appearance of the Shekinah glory. Okay, that's what it was. So you can track that Shekinah glory through the Bible. And this is the second time it appears in the New Testament. The 15th appearance of the Shekinah glory. And you can still like the star. Yeah, the song, I'm sorry. You still like the song. Just, you know, little star of Bethlehem. You still sing it. But just know that it's mostly nonsense. And it has contributed to all kinds of Christmas decorations that don't belong anywhere near the church. But any time, Christmas time, we start talking about stars, that's why I say to you, we must deal with the absence of third stage supernova remnants. Very important. Time dilation, thermodynamics, absolute necessary ingredient. It is a basic ingredient. Let me say that again. Understanding that there is no third stage SNRs is a necessary thing for you to know. Every Christian should know it. It should be in your, your Christian basic wisdom package that you get when you go to church. I should do that someday. I should make you a little basic. I did. I made a cliffside thing of lists, and it's been edited a couple of times. and I still have more things to do. But you need to know. There's no third stage SNRs. Why not? And that's our current subject, by the way, as well. Many of you have noticed we are in a discussion, because you brought it up to me. One of you did. I won't embarrass her, but she brought it up to me last week and said, uh, we're in a conservation of energy issue, creation of energy issue. That's right. The discussion that we're having about biblical holism versus radical dualism is a physics discussion. That's why I like them so much. It's a discussion of energy. It's a discussion of who creates energy. Because I'm saying to you, you are two parts, right? You are a physical part and you are a energy part, a supernatural part. Now, I break three into two. So don't get confused. Soul, spirit, body. 
I take the soul spirit, make that supernatural, because it is. So you are a supernatural part. Does that make sense? You've got to be really careful there. You're a supernatural part that's two parts, and you are a physical part. And we are talking about how do you create this supernatural part? Where does it come from? Where does it go? And the biblical holists say, when that super, when you physically die, what happens to your supernatural part? They say it dies too. It ceases to exist. Does that make sense? Doesn't make sense. Why is it so popular? Why do so many Christians want to believe it? Why would anybody want to believe it? There's another question I have. But that's what we're in, a discussion of energy, a discussion of creation of energy. That's where we are today. That's why we're dealing with monistic cessation of existence versus radical dualism. I look around. I don't see anybody that needs to know the terms of that. So I'm going to just skip over that. Most of the time I'll redefine it. But you need to know monistic cessation of existence versus radical dualism. That's another thing that has to be in your basket of things you must know. It must be in your basket of essential Christian wisdom. Consequences of not knowing it are huge. Do we know how to turn off the heat? Do we? Can we do that? 20 seconds? Because it keeps coming on and it bugs me. Jack, if we turn it off, though, we've got to turn it back on, right? Who's in charge of turning it back on? I don't know how to do it. I'm pretending. Okay. But it just bothers me when it cuts on in the middle of the sermon. We went to a lot of work to not have that happen. We were cold. But we went to a lot of work. Currently, we've been on this detour of contrasting biblical holism against traditional orthodox, thank you, uh, dualism. Or immortal supernatural soul spirit, which contains our individual being, our individual consciousness, See, you are, I'm, let me say it again, you are an immortal supernatural soul spirit that has, the material has been given, created by God and given to you. And it goes on past physical death. That's your consciousness. That's your thought process. You're never going to cease to exist. That's critical that you tell people that. Critical you tell your kids that. And how do you tell your kids that? You tell your kids that by explaining there are no third stage SNRs. Does that make sense to you yet? It will. Making sense isn't my goal, as you know, yet. But immortal, supernatural soul spirit, which contains your, my individual being, that's dualism, continuing post-physical death versus the holism concept, which is the cessation of existence at physical death. Got to know the difference. Got to know how important this is. Got to be able to communicate with it. That's why I'm beating it into you. They'll say that everyone ceases to exist. Everything ceases to exist at death, and then God does what? Resurrects the ones he likes, the ones that are saved. The rest go on to extinction, annihilation. Again, caveat, some holists teach that all are resurrected for trial, and then God extinguishes the wicked. So they have the general resurrection of everybody, and then he just gets rid of the ones that he chooses to annihilate. And by the way, he has chosen to annihilate them when? When did he decide that he's going to annihilate them, according to the biblical holists? We also call this hyper-Calvinism. When did he decide to get rid of the wicked? He's outside of time, right? So they will say, what? He decided to create the wicked, 
to create the unsaved for the purpose of annihilating them. That's what they say. Cool, huh? Do you know any Calvinist churches, hyper-Calvinists? Oh, yeah. They're there. And so if you have that view, and, and, and listen, uh, don't think that I'm... Um, I understand the view because what they're doing very, very wisely, actually, is they are coming down on the side of the omniscience of God. And now they're in a cause and effect discussion. Does his omniscience cause the destruction of our free will? And can he destroy our free will and still judge us in a, in a good way? Does that affect his goodness? So all that discussion comes up there. Okay, can't even begin to list the question, that, the, all the questions that come up that are caused by God predestining the extinguishing of the wicked after he resurrects them. Seem obvious right off the bat. If it's bad for God to put people forever in hell, why is it okay for God to resurrect them and then put them forever into annihilation? Or to temporarily, if it, we're just talking about degrees now, aren't we? If it's bad to put somebody in hell, in the, con- in the lake of fire for eternity, is it okay to put them in the lake of fire for half of eternity? That's a trick question. How long is half of eternity? Okay, but you get my grip. Okay, we'll make it easier. If it's bad to put people in the lake of fire forever, is it okay to put them in the lake of fire for a couple thousand years? Is that okay? Let's say 10,000 years. Are we talking about now, is there a cutoff where it, God is bad? Is it 2,000 years, God's still good? And then it, if, you, if he leaves him in the lake of fire, burns him for a couple more thousand, um, and then he annihilates him, that's okay. See, you're beginning to argue, once you decide that it is bad for God to destroy in the lake of fire sin in the sense of how he destroys it, how he puts it into destruction forever. Once you decide that's bad, then now all you're doing is arguing over degrees of bad. So, and biblical holism tries to accomplish two things. Remember that. It tries to accommodate the scientific atheistic community, which is monistic. In other words... We're just one thing. We don't have a supernatural part. We're an entirely physical being. The biblical holists say we're not entirely physical, but we're, we all, it all dies. It's all dependent on the physical. So that, to me, is the same thing, frankly. If the cessation of existence occurs at physical death, then physical death is in control of the supernatural component, isn't it? So why would you say, okay, you have a supernatural component, but it dies when you die physically. My question becomes, who's in charge, the physical or the supernatural? And how does the physical kill the supernatural? So anyway, they're really happy, though, to be monistic because that accommodates the scientific community because the scientific community is entirely monistic. So biblical holism seeks common ground with atheism, with evolutionary atheism, The evolutionary atheist says your consciousness is the result of a physical process. 
and when that physical process ends, you cease to exist, okay? So that is, by the way, the number one argument that happens at Christmas. What is Christmas all about? It is about the supernatural being doing what? Becoming what? Becoming human. They will say this. When Christ died on the cross, he ceased to exist. Well, you have to, don't you? Because Christ is what? Human. His consciousness ended, they will say. And he was resurrected by God. Needless to say, he what? He is God. Uh-oh. We are now chasing our tail. If you say that his consciousness ceased to exist when he was crucified and died, then how did he resurrect himself? And did Christ resurrect himself? Yes, he did. He said, destroy this temple in three days. I will resurrect it. You'd expect that, right? Because he's God. All the triune God, all persons of the triune God were involved in the resurrection. But they want this to be so true because they want to have common ground with the atheists and they want this biblical oneism that they have. They see judgment of sin in the lake of fire forever as being unjust, ungood, and unfair. That's the two things they want to do. They want to accommodate scientific atheism that's monistic, and they want to say the forever in hell or forever in the lake of fire isn't good. God cannot do this. They claim it's evil, and God is love, and a loving God would not create an immortal soul and then allow that soul to be confined in eternal torment. He wouldn't do it. They say that all the time. A loving God would not judge people and cast them into hell. That happens every Christmas. Because when Christ came, how many got saved? What percentage of the world is saved? How many Christians, you know, there's more Christians in China, by the way, than there are in the United States. You'd expect that by just simple math. They have a billion and a half people. We only have 300 million a little political stuff here. The Chinese have figured something out that we're going to figure out here pretty soon. Sorry to offend you. The Chinese figured out, and so have the Indians, that they cannot provide government health care for two billion people. It's a Ponzi game. We'll figure that out, too, eventually. That's just me being me. Sorry. No, not really. A living soul would not create a living, I'm sorry, a loving God would not create a living soul and then allow that soul to be in, confined in eternal torment. Um, now, that's an interesting statement because that requires us to ask the question, if it's true that he does it, how does he do it? And by the way, you're going to find that this alignment is common against the uh, evolutionary atheists, they'll say the same thing, that a living God consistently, they do it all the time, to mock us dualists. A loving God does not confine living souls to torment. So once again, biblical oneism or biblical holism has a bedfellow with scientific creationism. And I, that would worry me if I were um, them, because I would look at the atheist community and realize that they hate me. Why would I want to agree with them? Okay. 
All of that to tell you, do you see the, the absent of, absence of light and goodness in the lake of fire? Do you understand that link to God abandoning the wickedness and the wicked to the wickedness? Let me repeat it, because I'm kind of getting myself confused. Do you see this issue of, is it good to put people in the lake of fire for eternity? God abandoning people in the lake of fire The light of God is gone. Do you see that link and the Pharaoh being hardened? Do you see the similar, uh, the similarities between saying that God would not put people into eternal judgment in the lake of fire and God hardening the Pharaoh's heart? It is the same discussion. It is the same question. Do you see it is my question for you. How exactly, what is exactly the anatomy, the process, the steps of God hardening Pharaoh's heart? What is happening in the lake of fire? Why is the lake of fire the lake of fire? What, what is causing the lake of fire to be this exact place? Why does he put you there? And then what happens once you're there if you're unsaved? And now I'm also dealing with I'm dealing with the Pharaoh being hardened. What causes the lake? He calls it utter black darkness where there is gnashing of teeth and wailing. Why is it utter black darkness? He's gone from there. How can an omniscient being, an omnipresent being be gone? That's another discussion. But the lake of fire is dark because God is absent from it. Why is the Pharaoh's heart hardened? What made the Pharaoh's heart harden? First off, did the Pharaoh harden himself? Yes, six times. Did God harden the Pharaoh? It says yes, six times. Obvious question. Who hardened who first? Okay, we'll look it up in a couple of weeks. How did the Pharaoh harden his own heart? What's the process? How did God, how does God harden people? Okay. How, how does he confine people in the lake of fire? It's the same question. Why will he put him in there eternally? It's the same thing. Why are they there in the first place? If he could soften their heart, would they? Oh, and that, by the way, is a very, that's a question. If, he, if their hearts were softened, would they be there? So I have hardened hearts in the lake of fire. How did they get hardened? What's the process? How long does it take to harden your heart? And what do you do? And if God hardens your heart, what does he do? Does he go, Kathy's sleeping, boom, hardened heart. She wasn't really sleeping. She was resting comfortably. Riding, I'm sorry. How does God harden your heart if he does, if he did? Is Is it a physical act? He beats you with a stick? He leaves you alone is exactly right. And I say it this way. If I were going, if I were God and I'm not, never ever assume that I am. And if you ever do, you're, you're in trouble and we'll all go to prison if we live through the Kool-Aid experience. But never. But for now, I know that was, if you think about it, Guyana, Jim Jones, right? Dated myself. If you, if I were representing God and I'm not, don't ever think that I am. If I were representing God, and I wanted to represent what it does, what he does when he hardens you. This is what he does. 
He leaves you alone. He backs up from you. Some will argue that he doesn't. Some will argue that he lets you back up from him. So when you harden your heart, you back up from him. When he hardens your heart, you back up from him. How is that? How is you backing up always? How can that be him? If you back up from him, he has to do what? How does how do you back away from God? See, there's there's your discussion about the total blackness in the lake of fire, the absence of light and godness and goodness. What is the relationship to these questions that I just asked you and the purpose of rapture? What's the purpose of the rapture? Is it to save you from the tribulation? Is that the purpose of the rapture? No, it's not. What's the purpose of the rapture? It's to isolate Israel from us. Why does he want us isolating? Why does he want Israel isolated from Christians? Because he does. What's he doing with Israel? Same thing as the Pharaoh, right? How does the removal of the church affect the tribulation? Why then is there 144,000 witnesses, if you will, 144,000 who testify? Why is there two witnesses? And all of these fit together. All of them are the same question. Holism and dualism and the absence of light and goodness in the lake of fire and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, all of these are the same questions. And Hebrews 10 fits in here because Hebrews 10 and the exodus and the wilderness wanderings of Israel is the same question. I have a little note here. If you can't understand Hebrews 10, find the Old Testament complement. The Old Testament complement is that Israel tried to do what when they're in the wilderness? They tried to go back to Egypt. Could they go back to Egypt? <coughs> Why not? What did he do to stop them from going back to Egypt? First thing he did is he put the Red Sea back into place, right? Made, he replaced the barrier. That was bad news for Pharaoh. Second thing he does is what? He wanders them around. They never get back to, to Egypt. That's where they want to go. They say so over and over and over again. Oh, we had it made in Egypt. We're just slaves building things, getting, getting ourselves beat to death. But he doesn't let them go back. Hebrews 10 is about going back. Is it about losing salvation? By the way, did all the Israelites die in the wilderness except Caleb and Joshua? Yep. First generation had a bad day. They all died in the wilderness. Forty years. Caleb and Joshua, they live. They get to go into the promised land. Everybody else dies. Were they all unsaved? Well, if you did, if you say they are, then somebody will. Somebody will say Hebrews 10 proves that Moses and Miriam and Aaron and the like are all unsaved. Good luck with that. Because Hebrews 10 is the same discussion as Israel, Exodus, Pharaoh, and all that. Noting the relationships between the desire of the Exodus Israelites to return to Egypt and Hebrews 10 goes a long way in solving Hebrews 10 and removes the most common interpretive errors. So that's how we get from Pharaoh's destruction in the Red Sea, God closing the way back, shutting the ark door, if you will, the death of Israel in the wilderness, if I'm going to talk about the death of Israel in the wilderness to keep them from going back somewhere, where am I going to go next in the Bible? 
Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife make it back to Sodom? Nope. What'd he do? Buried her in salt. Didn't make a statue out of it. Don't get your doctrine from cartoons. She wants to go back. What's he do? She's going back after her children, by the way, if you were here for that sermon. What's he do? Pour salt all over. What's that do? Preserves her where she's at. Saved or unsaved? See, Lot's wife is a wonderful picture of eternal security. Israel make it back to Egypt? Stop them. Hebrews 10, the same thing. People who want to go back to Jerusalem. If they go back to Jerusalem, what's going to happen? Titus is coming. Remember Lot's wife. Christ said that. That's a very important thing. You'd expect that. Okay. Quickly. Ecclesiastes 3. Find Psalms. Find Ecclesiastes 3. We'll end with this. Might skip a couple of pages. Let's read it. We'll start at 16. 3.16, moreover I saw under the sun. If you were here last week, thank you. If you were here last week, what does under the sun mean? It means under the sun, physical death on earth. In the place of judgment, what's the obvious question? What's the place of judgment on earth for physical humanity? Wickedness was there. So the place of judgment on earth, wickedness is there. Where's that? Where's the place of judgment? What's it, Solomon? It's either the courts or it's where else? The church. Wickedness is there. Does that surprise you that we have wickedness in the court system or the church? If you're surprised by that, we have a long way to go. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. What's the place of righteousness? That clearly is the church, isn't it, or the temple? We got sin in the temple, and we got sin in the courtroom. Sin in the uh, here's a and there's a lawyer joke right ready to go right there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for there for every purpose and for every work. God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked, and he's going to get every purpose and every work. How many is that? That's all of them. So we got anybody annihilated before they're judged? Nope. Or unless you call the annihilation judgment. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the, of the sons of men, God tests them. Oh, there's a great question. God tests them. You're being tested. I'm being tested. What's the obvious question? What's the test about? How we doing? Yeah, what, yeah, what's a failing grade? Are you got one? I'm going to tell you that we're being tested. What's testing us? That they might, they may see that they themselves are like animals. Okay, the test has got something to do with animals. We're like animals. What's the test? What should we do at Christmas? What should I do on Christmas Sunday? I should do this test. They don't have visitors. They don't even know they're being tested. But you're being tested. What's the test about? It's got something to do with animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. So what happens to the sons of man, what happens to mankind also happens to animals. That's part of the test. So what's that mean? One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Okay? Animals die, don't they? 
Human beings die. So something about death is the test. Surely they all have one breath. In other words, the breath is the same. The animals are designed very, very similar to us. Man has no advantage over animals. For all is useless. That's cool. There's your test. Animals die. We die. We're very much the same as animals. We're all living souls. Animals are living souls. That means they are what? Woo, almost went down. Down goes Fraser. We're all living souls. Animals are living souls. We're living souls. Our death and animal's death is very much the same. Everything's useless. There's your test. Ready? Write down your answers. Send them forward. And he does this. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upwards and the spirit which goes down to the earth? You might have the spirit of animals which goes down to the earth. If you do, recognize that not all translations have that. It is more accurate to say it this way. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upwards and the spirit which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that, uh, that a man should rejoice in his own works, and that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Okay? Last Sunday, we explained... The biblical holists really have problems here. They have problems in Ecclesiastes 9. They fail to understand it because they fail to see this under the sun context and the importance of that phrase. You cannot read Ecclesiastes unless you know what under the sun means. And Solomon tells you all the time you got to get it. And that explains why there's a living dog is better than a, than a dead lion and all the rest of the difficult things in Ecclesiastes 9. And Ecclesiastes 9, if you remember, is about judgment and salvation. The white garment and the anointing oil is a salvation image. So we have judgment, we have salvation, and it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. What did that mean if you were here? It means that a dead lion can't be saved. He's dead. Oh, that was a great lion, a great man, a great person, a great leader. If he dies unsaved, he's what? He's dead, unsaved. And that dog, that worthless guy, that guy in prison, that, by the way, is one of the most incredible things, is, is uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's final interview. And it's extraordinary with uh, Stone Phillips. Just, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, perhaps the most evil man of my generation, incredibly evil man. And he looked at Stone Phillips and said, I'm saved. He's what? He is a living dog. And it is better to be him than Gandhi. Gandhi, a lion of a man, dies unsaved. Jeffrey Dahmer, a dog, lives eternally. That's what Ecclesiastes 9 is talking about. Well, they have the same problem here in Ecclesiastes 3. They neglect the under-the-sun context. They miss again the salvation aspect of it, too. However, to their credit, they do not make the same error in 3.18 through 22 that most modern scholars do. Note, when I say modern scholar, that's almost a contradiction in terms. There really isn't such a thing as a modern scholar. I don't have very many people that I read that are not dead. There's a couple. Fruchtenbaum comes to mind. But most of them are dead. Scholarship has died in our country. Very, very few biblical scholars have arisen in the, very, in the last 50 years. I think that's the sign of the Laodicean age. 
of uh, Revelation 3.16. Anyway, the biblical holists do not make this common error, which says that animals cease to exist when they die, and human beings go, they're supernatural. Because nephesh kaya, living soul, is equally applied to both animals, breathing animals, and human beings in Scripture. It's done in Genesis 7, 15 through 22, and it's done in Genesis 1, 20 and 24, and Genesis 2, 7. Genesis plainly states that animals are living souls, breathing animals are living souls, and human beings are living souls. They are eternal creatures. Anybody that tells you only humanity has immortality is not reading his Bible very well. And I would recommend that you get E.D. Buckner's Immortality of Animals, among other people who have written on this subject, and some of the greatest biblical, Adam Clark, perhaps the, the great scholar of his time, absolutely agrees with uh, the immortality of animals. And Walvard, who's gone now, um, I, can't, I can just list person after person. Anyone who tells you, how many have been taught that animals cease to exist when they die? It can't be true. And I would expect it. How many of you were in a biblical holism community? Yeah, there you go. Not expected from them. See, the question ultimately becomes, is, I, I got told this a couple months ago. God doesn't resurrect animals. Said, well, they're living souls. Where do they go when they die? Well, they cease to exist. Well, if animals cease to exist when they die, why don't I cease to exist? Well, you're a human. You're different. Well, the word's the same. I know, but God can't keep track of all those animals. That's what he said. God can't do that. Is God infinite enough? Is he omniscient enough? Can he remember all his creation over time? Can he do it? Would he do it? Is it good that he does it? Buckner's going to make a very strong case, baby. It will shock you what E.D. Buckner has to say about this. Is he good enough to do it? Would it be something that is good? Would it be good to resurrect an animal? Is an animal guilty of anything? I know you think your dog eats your food off the counter at Thanksgiving, and that's a bad dog. But is he guilty? No, he's not guilty. Dogs are nephesh kaya, just like us, living souls, just like us. They have the same definition of life that's us. And so what is life? Where did their life come from? How is it made? If they are a living soul and a physical being, how is that living soul made? Who made it? Who put it there? Can it be destroyed? Who could destroy it? Well, they say, the biblical whole is no immortality for everyone. All of creation into annihilation. They really want that because they think that's good, that's just, that's fair. Is it fair to annihilate an animal? Would God do that? Under the sun, physical life on earth is a place of judgment. Courts of mankind is, a, is, is evil, the place of righteousness, the temple of Solomon. Solomon's talking about his own temple there when he says that. The temple of Solomon is evil. The courts are evil. The temple is evil. What's he doing? He's contrasting that with God. God is not evil. He is pure good. It is absolutely perfect justice where God is. There's wickedness in the court, there's sin in the priesthood, but no, not with God. That's what he's doing. God's good. And a time of judgment is coming. And God shall judge. His temple is pure good. His court is perfect justice. Every human intent, every human deed will be judged by him, every single one. Animals have no guilt. Animals are not judged. 
Animals do not have the free will to reject God. It is not their fault. Will he condemn them? If you say that he will, what have you said about his character? And now this test. What is the test? It's physical death under the sun. Animals and mankind all die physically. We get to I've watched dogs die. I've watched my own dogs die. I'm going to die just like Zeke died. I saw him die. He had cancer on his cancer. You take the bandages off, he had cancer on the bandages. Died of a blood clot. He was mad at us. He had every right to be mad at us. Animals are going to die, and we will die. And animals teach us about death, and it's a test. They're all living souls. They all go to one place. All are from the dust. All return to the dust. What is he talking about when he says that? He's not talking about your spirit soul, is he? He's talking about your physical body. Our physical bodies go to dust. Notice the order. He said... Surely they all have one living soul. What's that? Supernatural. Then they all go to one place. The dust. What's that? The natural. Supernatural, natural. The supernatural metaphysical matter exists. The natural physical matter returns to dust. And then he says, who knows that the spirit of the sons of men goes upward or goes downward? Who knows that? What's implied by the rhetorical Hebrew question? Who knows that something goes up and something goes down. Who knows that? In other words, what's he saying? Who knows that some are, are eternal and some are annihilated? Who knows that? What's the rhetorical question? In the Hebrew rhetorical, it means nobody knows it. Because why? It isn't true. No one knows this because there's no truth there. Where is the destiny, he is asking, of the spirit of an animal? Where is the destiny of the spirit of the man? What human being would know the destiny? He doesn't know. That's God's purview. What works should be rejoiced in then? What is the heritage that is rejoiced over? What's the test? Do you understand how you're made? That's the test. Do you understand how you die? That's the test. Do you understand what happens to you when you die? That's the test. Do you pass that test? That's how it works. That's the test of physical death. Everything else, he says, is a waste of your time if you can't pass the test. If you don't know what happens to you at death, how you are made, you don't understand that looking at the death of an animal, what happens to that animal and how it is a picture for you. You don't get that. You have no wisdom. Everything you have is simple. How long will you love the simple? Solomon is talking about wisdom. That's duh. That's Solomon writing it. Define it. What is wisdom? It is understanding in the context of Ecclesiastes 3. It is understanding how we are made. Okay. Physical death erases the simple. And your heritage should be those works that understand the eternity, the supernatural, not those things that are focused on the physical. Okay? Here come the musicians. Off goes the microphone.